We're continuing our discussion of Randy Barnett's essay on the Constitution and originalism. Which Constitution should we follow? We'll talk about it more on episode 774 of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. All right, so we're going to continue our discussion of Randy Barnett's long, long piece on the Constitution, what originalism really is. Should we follow the original Constitution? Should we follow the Constitution as amended by the 14th Amendment? Is that originalism? What is it? Before I get into all that, though, let me remind you about McClanahan Academy because I'm actually going to mention it today. There's a class that covers a lot of this material at McClanahan Academy. So you can go over to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll free of charge, get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you enroll. It's a great, great win for you. Plus, you can purchase classes there to help keep this podcast free of charge. I've got them at all different price levels. So you've got them from $39 up to several hundred dollars, depending on what kind of class you want. But again, win-win. If you like the podcast, you'll love the content. You'll love the classes at McClanahan Academy. So you should get them because you're going to love them. All right. Well, let's continue with this uh, this discussion. This, this actually might end up being a four-part show because there's just so much stuff here. And we're going to pick up where we left off yesterday talking about uh, Salmon P. Chase and uh, what he said about the uh, Constitution and the Fugitive Slave Clause. Now, Barnett will now cite a speech from Charles Sumner. And this is, um, I cover this speech in Radical Republicans at McClanahan Academy. It's one of the most important speeches in, uh, in congressional history, without question, because of the direction that it went. But this is, this is an interesting argument that he makes. He says this, quote, in 1852, this position, he's talking about Salmon P. Chase and the Fugitive Slave Law, was presented at length on the floor of the Senate by Charles Sumner, the Free Soul Party Senator from Massachusetts. Sumner's speech received far more attention than had Chase's speech in 1850. After meticulously parsing the debates in Philadelphia, he concluded that, quote, This record demonstrates that the word person was employed in order to show that slaves everywhere under the Constitution were always to be regarded as persons and not as property and thus to exclude from the Constitution all idea that there can be property in man. Now, um, we have to... Let me, let me stop there and say something about this. Southerners wouldn't have rejected this idea. In fact, uh, if you look at Southern law and you look at Southern court cases, they recognize the humanity of slaves all the time. All the time. Uh, slaves were treated as people and not property, so this is Charles Sumner creating a false dichotomy that somehow uh, this idea that slaves were just simply property uh, in anywhere. I mean, I do agree with him, the, but that wasn't the Constitution. This is also states that had done this exact same thing. And so when he says, he follows this, he says, Remember well that Mr. Sherman was opposed to the Fugitive Slave Clause in its original form, has acknowledged men to be property that Mr. Madison was also opposed to it because he thought it was wrong to admit in the Constitution that the idea that there could be property in man, and that after these objections, the clause was so amended as to exclude the idea. But slavery cannot be national unless this idea is distinctly and unequivocally admitted into the Constitution. That's not true. That's not true at all. Um, 
because he's not really understanding the complexity of the institution in the United States. But regardless, again, this is where they're going to, if you're going to point back to Charles Sumner and Salmon P. Chase and all these Republicans, you need to understand something about these people. They had a very clear agenda. And their very clear agenda was not just anti-slavery. It was Northern power. And they were going to use everything at their disposal to get that. What Barnett and others miss, of course, in all of this is that Northern nationalism was really just Northern sectionalism. What Charles Sumner was trying to do is make America New England. And Randy Barnett would certainly be fine with that because he has to create his boogeyman. He is no better than the Straussians or the left because this is exactly what they do. They have to pull a boogeyman out of American history and it has to be the South and it has to be John C. Calhoun and it has to be anything that has to do with the original Constitution. Again, Barnett saying we don't need to follow that because of race, because we have slaveholders, because if we just follow the 14th Amendment Constitution and we just followed you know, these Republicans, then the Republicans would win all the time because everyone would see that, hey, we're the good guys in all this. The thing that these people miss is that that won't work politically. It will never work politically because the left will never allow that to work politically. The Republicans wouldn't hand out enough candy. I've made this this uh, analogy before, but you know, if the Republicans follow this path, well, they've got a bowl of candy, but it's a lot smaller bowl and the candy's a lot worse than the Democrats who are doing the same thing and handing out more stuff. The, none of this stuff really matters if you don't hand out the candy. You watch the, the Hulu show with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, and her entire aim of that is money. That's what's undergirding everything. Money. Oprah Winfrey asked her directly, how much money would it take? $13 trillion was her response. $13 trillion. Now, we know in San Francisco, they're going to hand out, supposedly millions of dollars, at least this is the plan, for reparations in San Francisco. Millions of dollars to each person uh, who could trace their history back to San Francisco, each African-American who traced their history back in San Francisco. Millions of dollars. It's absolute lunacy. There's no money there for this stuff. People wonder why we have inflation. But if Nicole Hannah-Jones had her way, of course, if you look at inflation and you look how much money is in circulation now compared to, say, just 20 years ago, we went from about $7 trillion in circulation 20 years ago to $30-plus trillion in circulation now. Well, people wonder why we have inflation. There's too much money in circulation. Add $13 trillion to that. And anybody that's ever done the math, that $13 trillion would be like that, that uh, movie, uh, Bruce Almighty, where everyone wins the lottery and so everyone gets a dollar. Or, I mean, it's just, this is what would happen. That $13 trillion would pump so much money in the economy, that $13 trillion would be worth a lot less than $13 trillion now. It's just absolutely ridiculous to think that this is somehow even feasible long-term to think about these things. So Barnett says, Instead, slavery was a creature entirely of local law to be tolerated, but in no way endorsed or expanded by the Constitution. This position became the organizing principle of the anti-slavery, liberty, free soul, and eventually the Republican parties. Entirely of local law, but no way endorsed by or expanded by the Constitution. Well, see, this is where Jefferson Davis said it's not being expanded by the Constitution. It's simply just there. The Constitution, though, does require that property be protected. And so, in that way, the Constitution can't be anti-property, but you don't have to have positive law to make slavery exist. There's no positive law in any of it. This is, the, this is what they would say the point being. There's no positive law. So we can talk about that argument at length. Again, I have a class reading Jefferson Davis where he gets into this. 
This is a really interesting legal argument. Is it positive law or is it not positive law that makes all this stuff work in the territories and in the states, etc.? So Barnett says, but wait, there's more. The original Constitution affirmed the power of Congress to abolish the slave trade with other nations, though it postponed any exercise of this power until 1808, 20 years after the adoption of the original Constitution. At the time, this was considered by anti-slavery activists to be a major blow against slavery. In 1808, President Jefferson proposed the abolition of that trade, and Congress swiftly acted to do so. What power was Congress exercising when it abolished the slave trade? According to Edmund Randolph, the first attorney general, it was Congress's power to regulate commerce with foreign nations that empowered it to ban the slave trade with other countries. Indeed, power to, prior to the abolition of slavery, Congress exercised its commerce power to regulate the interstate slave trade. Now, of course, what's missing here is that this was actually in the Constitution. Congress could ban the slave trade. Um, and you could say, well, of course, this is international trade. This is what Congress has to do. It has to... It has to uh, negotiate trade with foreign powers. But this is in the Constitution. He makes he makes a pretty interesting uh, then claim here, which I think is completely stretching the meaning of the interstate intrastate intrastate slave clause, which would be or interstate uh, clause, commerce clause, which mean that the Congress can then regulate slavery between the states. Here's what he says. On this reasoning, however, the Commerce Clause in the original Constitution also gave Congress the power to abolish the interstate slave trade, intrastate slave trade as well, or interstate, right? So interstate. In his speech to the Senate in 1850, Salmon Chase also made this Commerce Clause argument, adding, it is less cruel, less deserving of punishment to, to tear fathers, mothers, children from their homes and each other in Maryland and Virginia and transport them to the markets of Louisiana or Mississippi. So he's saying Congress has the power to do this. Now, again... To regulate, to regulate commerce, uh, Roger Sherman, who was actually quoted earlier by, by uh, Charles Sumner, made it clear that this was supposed to be a way for Congress to ensure that trade be open between the states, not to regulate it in this particular way. Now, uh, this is not an original understanding of the Commerce Clause. You see, this is where Barnett says, I'm an originalist. There's no original understanding here. And... Um, when you look at what something that Calhoun would say, he would say, well, look, all this stuff is unconstitutional, no doubt, but the Congress does it anyway. So certainly they would have the power to do it because they do unconstitutional stuff all the time. Then there is the wording of the Fugitive Slave Clause in Article 4. Unlike the Full Faith and Credit Clause and the Republican Guarantee Clause, the Fugitive Slave Clause in Article 4 lacked a congressional enforcement power. As a young attorney representative, representing I'm sorry, fugitive slaves in the 1830s, Salmon Chase contended that Congress lacked any enumerated power to enforce what amounts to a treaty obligation to one of one sovereign state to another. Of course, Justice Story rejected this argument in Prigby, Pennsylvania. He did so by interpreting the Necessary and Proper Clause even more capriciously than did the New Deal and Warren Courts. But today we should not reflexively accept the Prig decision made by a Supreme Court dominated by the slave power as correct. Now, what's interesting about Prig v. Pennsylvania, Barnett is leaving out something very important here. Prig v. Pennsylvania actually uh, defended federalism because what Prig v. Pennsylvania said was that the states were not compelled to use their own police powers to round up fugitive slaves. They didn't have to do it. What Prig v. Pennsylvania said is that the general government could send in marshals to reacquire slaves, which, by the way would be more in line with what the understanding of the Fugitive Slave Clause meant when it was ratified. 
This is all, again, twisting, not originalism. Barnett is not actually relying on originalism here. He's relying on what the Republicans said in the 1850s as being originalism. It's not. It's not. He's not an originalist in this way. This is where Barnett is dangerous because Barnett is not really an originalist. He says he is. He's a 14th Amendment originalist. He's a Republican Party originalist. That's not originalism. Actually, Roger Tawney was being perfectly accurate in the Prigby, Pennsylvania decision. It was not the slave power. They were saying, states, hey, Massachusetts, you don't have to use your own police powers. You don't have to use your own police to round up fugitive slaves if you don't want to, but you can't block federal marshals from doing it. You can't do that. That's illegal. Remember, the Fugitive Slave Clause is in the Constitution. Part of this had to do with nullification, and it was said that these states were nullifying something that was in the Constitution. You can't do that. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. Barnett kind of skims over this. But the real important part of Prigby, Pennsylvania, is something that's still applicable today, that the states don't have to use their police powers to enforce federal law. The federal government can send in all the agents they want. We can debate whether those laws are constitutional or not, and that's something else. But if they have, uh, if they pass, and this happens all the time, say with like drug laws. If they have drug laws, the states don't have to enforce any of those federal drug laws. They can have their own drug laws they can enforce, certainly. States can do that all day long, but they don't have to enforce federal drug laws, for example, or uh, federal firearms laws. They don't have to use, I mean, if the ATF wants to come in, they can't stop them. But, and we can debate whether any of that is constitutional, but at the, on the other hand, the state doesn't ha is not compelled, cannot be compelled by force to use their resources to enforce federal law, which essentially nullifies the federal law because the federal government doesn't have the manpower to enforce all of their unconstitutional edicts. This is the way it works. Barnett says, further, Article 4 included the enumerated power of Congress to make all need for rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the, to the United States. And Congress also had enumerated power to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over the District of Columbia. This seems obviously to grant the Congress the same power to abolish slavery in the territories on federal government installations and in the District of Columbia as did the seven original states that chose to abolish slavery prior to the Civil War. Now, this seems... Obviously, it wasn't really obvious to people even in the founding generation. They talked about it. See, this is where Barnett's kind of skimming over some arguments here that were really serious arguments in the founding period. Now, there were some in the, uh, the Southerners that said it did. Well, this gave them power. But there were some that said it didn't because where Congress has enumerated powers. You look through Article 1, Section 8. This is the argument they're going to make. Where does it say Congress has any authority over slavery whatsoever in those? I mean, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say it at all. So if it doesn't say it and there's no power to legislate for or against slavery, then Congress is mute on it. And therefore, in the territories, you can't make any, quote, rules and regulations in regard to that institution. So uh, Congress might be doing this, but it doesn't mean it's legal. This is, this is a big argument. Barnett just kind of skims over the arguments that will be used against this. And there were many of them. So... He's not. He's relying on the Republican Party and their arguments to say this is how it works. But there are lots of people who rejected that argument outright. I mean, again, he doesn't even get into that. The only constitutional objection to this federal power to abolish slavery in these locals was formulated in 1836 in a report by a House Select Committee upon the subject of slavery in the District of Columbia, 
chaired by Representative Henry Pinckney of South Carolina. In its report, the committee claimed that Congress's right to legislate within the district, though exclusive, was evidently qualified by the Due Process Clause. We lay it down as a rule that no government can do anything directly repugnant to the principles of natural justice and of the social compact. It will be totally subversive of all the purposes of which government is instituted. Consequently, no Republican could approve of any system of legislation by which the property of an individual lawfully acquired should be arbitrarily wrested from him by the high hand of power. Now, um, that would be kind of substantive due process uh, that he's going after here. But regardless, that was not the only time that anybody brought this stuff up. Barnett is just full of it right there. People talked about this all the time. Jefferson Davis made speeches on this stuff when it came to property in the territories and how the government had no had no power there. He says the only constitutional objection? No, that's not the only... Con- Barnett doesn't even know what he's talking about here. That's not the only constitutional objection. It was talked about over and over again. This is a really bad essay in that way. According to this theory, the Due Process Clause protection of life, liberty, and property qualified the federal government over the district by preventing it from denying slaveholders of their rightful property and their slaves. This is exactly the argument that Chief Justice Taney would employ some 20 years later in Dred Scott and extend the argument to Congress's power over the territories. Again, this was substantive due to process, and it wasn't the only argument made against this. It wasn't even, it wasn't even close to the only argument made against this. This is the one that Taney used, but it's not the only argument. But as I've already explained, Tawney was making it up in Dred Scott when he contended that the right of property of a slave he claimed is succinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. This claim was denied by dissenting Justice McLean, who explained that, quote, we know as a historical fact that James Madison, that great and a good man, a leading member of the Federal Convention, was solicitous to guard the language of that instrument so as not to convey the idea that there could be property in man. Valence shows that McLean was right and Tawney was wrong. Now, again... Uh, the Constitution may not have recognized property in a slave, expressly affirmed in the Constitution, but but it left the issue open to the states who could do any of this they wanted. And they could do that if they wanted. So the mute nature of it, I mean, you could, you could see how you would have someone like William Garrison um, saying that um, the the Constitution was pro-slavery, you could you could see that. Of course, I can also get it that you could see it wasn't, but it was neutral, right? This is this is where I've made this point before. Distinguishing, he says now, distinguishing the original meaning of the Constitution from its implementation. In the spring of 1851, Douglas publicly changed his stance on the Constitution. This is Frederick Douglass repudiating the Garrisonian reading and joining the ranks of the political abolitionists. In 1860, Frederick Douglass was invited to a debate to debate the question of whether the Constitution was pro-slavery or anti-slavery. In his remarks, Douglass took care to distinguish between the Constitution of the United States and the government of the United States. In thinking about the original Constitution today, we would be wise to heed Douglass's framing of the issue. The question, he said, quote, is not whether slavery existed in the United States at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. It is not whether slaveholders took part in the framing of the Constitution. It is not whether those slaveholders in their hearts intended to secure certain advantages in that instrument for slavery. It is not whether the American government has been wielding, uh, whether the American government has been wielding during 72 years in favor of the propagation and permanence of slavery. It is not whether a pro-slavery interpretation has been put upon the Constitution by the American courts. All these points may be true, or there may be, or they may be false. They may be accepted, or they may be rejected, without in any wise affecting the real question and debate. 
The real question, said Douglas, is does the United States Constitution guarantee to any class or description of people in that country the right to enslave or hold as property any other class or description of people in that country? To answer this question, Douglas adopted a version of the public meaning method of interpretation developed by Lysander Spooner in response to Wendell Phillips' pamphlet, The Constitution of Pro-Slavery Compact, which relied on evidence of the original intention of the framers. Douglas specifically rejected the approach of these of those he called the Garrisonians. Now, again, this the Constitution is anti-slavery. Lysander Spooner went to some great lengths and contortions to try to get to that reasoning. I would say that he was entirely incorrect in the way that he did it. And actually, um, Barnett would say the exact same thing. But what he's doing is taking a Douglas approach to this. The Constitution was somehow anti-slavery. At least it was mute on the issue. Barnett says, It should also be borne in mind that the intentions of those who frame the Constitution, be they good or bad, for slavery or against slavery, are respected so far as only so far as we find those intentions plainly stated in the Constitution. It will be the wildest of absurdities and lead to endless confusion and mischiefs if instead of looking at to the written paper itself for its meaning, if, if, we're to make, if we're attempted to make a search it out in the secret motives and dishonest intentions of some of the men who took part in writing it. It is what they said that was adopted by the people, not what they were ashamed or afraid to say and really admitted to say. Um... Now, that's, that's Douglas saying this, not, not Barnett. This is Douglas, Frederick Douglas saying this. So he's saying, uh, we should look at the paper itself. Now, that's textualism, <laughs> not originalism. You want to know intent? Um, and now, he, now, Douglas does say here is what they said that was adopted by the people, not what they were ashamed or afraid to say and really admitted to say. Now, this is true. I mean, he's kind of getting into originalism there when he says, what did they say it said? What did they say it meant? They talked about some of these things, um, but looking at the text of the document is not enough because that leads to textualism and open interpretation. I've made that point many times on this show as well. In this post, I did not deny that the Constitution left slavery as it found it in the original states where it existed in 1789. Contrary to Lysander Spooner, slavery was not unconstitutional under the original Constitution. But as Salmon Chase contended, the original Constitution also gave the federal government ample power to confine slavery within the borders of these states, prevent its further expansion, and directly undermine its continued existence. I would disagree with Salmon Chase. It did not do that. It did not. Because of the Tenth Amendment. It did not do it at all. And really, in some, in many ways, because of the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. Now, well, McClanahan, you're saying the Constitution is pro-slavery. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the states could do a lot with this. And when you look at the, in, in, unfortunately, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not defending the institution. Don't get me wrong here. But we're looking at this from a, from a position now of an argument made by one party for political motivation against the Constitution. We have to understand that. This is a political issue. So there's two sides to this story. And Southerners did make an impassioned defense of a legal framework that would defend slavery in the territories, not through substantive due process, but through constitutional understanding, originalism. They did it. Barnett is ignoring all of that in this paper, and that's the problem with it. He mentions it one time, but it was made in speeches. People talked about it over and over again in various speeches. The reason slavery grew more powerful was not due to its endorsement by the Constitution, but because of the political forces that supported its existence and expansion and how they came to dominate the national government. 
So now he's getting into the slave power. So he's becoming a slave power person, right? He's, he even mentioned it. This is the slave power. It's not to do with endorsement by his constitution, but because of political forces. Well, the constitution didn't have to endorse, in, endorse it, these people would say. It's mute on the issue. And the 10th Amendment and the 9th Amendment make it clear that the federal government has no power over this. Just because you say it has uh, you know, rules and regulations doesn't mean it can create powers that it did not have in the document to begin with. That's real originalism. Not where you say, well, rules and regulations mean that we can do whatever we want here. Even powers that are not confined to the Constitution. What you're saying there is then the Constitution would create a situation where the general government, the general government would have the power of a state. And it never had that. In fact, it was argued over and over again. It never had that power. It's not the necessary and proper clause that you're stretching here. It's that clause. This political domination was abetted by allowing southern states to count each of their slaves as three-fifths of a person for purposes of representation in Congress, which also enhanced the, their power in the Electoral College. And it was the president, with the advice and consent of the Senate, who chose the justices of the Supreme Court. Thus, all three branches came under the sway of what anti-slavery activists called the slave power. This was indeed one of several structural flaws in the original Constitution. So now he's going after the three-fifths uh, compromise, which you would actually say Southerners wanted it um, wanted slaves counted as a whole person. And why? Why did they do this? Uh, why did they do it? Um, not because they, they did it. They didn't do it for any nefarious reasons. They did it actually to protect themselves because they thought if they didn't have that kind of power and slaves were not counted towards representation, uh, that the North would essentially tax them out of existence. Not slavery, but the South. This is why you know George Mason proposed a navigation a, 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 an amendment that would have prohibited navigation laws, which were essentially uh, tariffs, protective tariffs. He didn't want that kind of stuff because he thought that all this stuff would eventually happen and the North would tax them out of existence. Now, Northerners had been against the Three-Fifths Compromise. I mean, you look at the, uh, the Hartford Convention. This was one of the things they wanted to abolish because they thought the South had too much power in the government. This was the Northern argument. The Three-Fifths Compromise with the slave states pro proved disastrous when the economics of slavery changed markedly after the invention of the cotton gin. It enabled the slave power to thwart any use of federal power to undermine slavery. But the Three-Fifths Clause could not take all the blame. It was not responsible for the Northern Democrats, I mean, he's right about this, not a, and not a few Northern Whigs who marched in political lockstep with the Southern slaveholders, in some cases due to their profiting by trading the products of slave labor. Now, again, he's reducing it all to this nefarious reason of slavery, but on the other hand, these people are also looking at this legally and understanding what the original Constitution was, and they weren't going to abuse federal power. I mean, they just weren't in line with that. These people, not the original Constitution, are to blame for failing to utilize the powers that the original Constitution gave the national government to all but abolish slavery. Again, not a national government, a federal republic. Uh, those powers weren't there, etc., etc. They weren't there, right? We could get into... They just weren't there. He's, he's, he's making some statements that aren't supported by any, any of the record itself. Having largely failed in the courts, the end of slavery required the decades-long, tireless, anti-slavery political action led by Salmon Chase, Frederick Douglass, and many others. In 1860, under the rules of the original Constitution, their efforts culminated in the anti-slavery Republican Party prevailing 
and the Electoral College in a four-way race for the presidency. Republicans also captured control of Congress. With the Republican victory, southern states saw the writing on the wall. They began seceding from the Union even before the Republicans could take office to implement their anti-slavery program using the existing powers of Congress. Now again, he's ignoring, he's ignoring something pretty important here. Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans actually put it in their plank that they weren't going to interfere with slavery that already existed. They had no power to do so. And the, the Corwin Amendment stated the exact same thing, which Lincoln had his fingerprints all over. What they did think they could do, of course, was prohibit slavery in the territories, which was the constitutional question of the day. And Southerners said they didn't have that kind of power. So what you would, what you would have had... Now, I do agree that the Republicans would have been interested in, in prohibiting uh, slavery in the territories. They would have done this. Southerners said, well, uh, that's unconstitutional. There's, and the Supreme Court, by the way, had, had said the same thing, but under a, under a reasoning that wasn't really in line with the way they should have argued the position if they wanted to take that position. Substantive due process was the wrong way to go about it. That was a distortion of the due process clause in the Fifth Amendment. So there's a whole lot of things going on. I actually agree that Tawney's interpretation of that and this report and that substantive due process, he's, he's kind of cherry-picking here, but Southerners made some pretty strong constitutional arguments uh, before this point, not relying on substantive due process. So, anyways. If the original Constitution was as pro-slavery as the Garrisonians and Chief Justice Roger Tawney had claimed, and as, it widely as is widely preached today, then these fears would have been entirely unwarranted. There would have been no need for the southern states to secede. But the Southerners were right to be afraid, and as historian James Oakes detailed in his master of a book, Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, after taking office, the Republicans, now unopposed due to the absence of Southern representatives, moved swiftly to enact their policies using the powers granted to Congress by the original Constitution. Um, so he's relying on James Oakes and Sean Valence, two very far leftists. This is the original criticism I have of Randy Barnett in the book when, when I reviewed his book. It was awful. Um, I, I made that point quite clear. Now, I could go into another. We've gotten about 30 minutes. Let me let me just wrap up this last part of it because I've made some, some statements here about this, but he's at the conclusion. So I'm going to wrap this up today. He says, In this post, I've only scratched the surface of how the original Constitution contributed to the ultimate demise of slavery. For example, I not discuss the important role that federalism played. Before concluding, however, let me offer two important caveats. Well, federalism is the most important part of it. All this thing, all the stuff that he just went over was all the debatable parts of whether slavery, the Constitution, did any of this. Because you're talking about federal power that is debatable. No one, no one in the South ever said Massachusetts never had a right to abolish slavery. No one said that. What they would contend, of course, is that Massachusetts could not take their slaves if they went to Massachusetts, like if they went to Boston uh, for a time. Massachusetts could not make those people free because they were not citizens of the state of Massachusetts, and they're only sojourning there. You know, so they're only there for a, a respite. They don't live there, right? So that's what they would say they can't do. And this actually wound up in the Confederate Constitution. And, and Marshall DeRose's book on the Confederate Constitution gets into this. What did that actually mean? And that term actually had a limited, limited statute. So if you became a citizen, then, of course, you couldn't keep your slaves. But if you were not a citizen of that state, then... Uh, you know, you, they could not take slaves away. So this is, well, then slavery is legal everywhere. Well, not really. 
Um, it's only legal to an extent, the people that are sojourning there. Right? So it's, it's just, again, messy stuff. We can look at that and say, wow, gosh, you know, that's kind of ugly. You know, that would make a pretty messy situation. But again, you're looking at the powers of the general government. And if we're going to be interested in the powers of the general government and what it can do and can't do, we can't pick and choose. We can't pick and choose. First, as I've already mentioned, while the original meaning of the Constitution was not pro-slavery, neither was it anti-slavery. I agree with him on this. Meaning it made slavery unconstitutional as Lysander Spooner, William Goodell, Garrett Smith, and Joe Tiffany, Joel Tiffany had, that had contended. Rather, as Sam and Chase contended, the Constitution gave an anti-slavery national government enough power to put slavery on the road to its ultimate extinction. Again, not a national government. We never had a national government. Ever. Ever. And I've talked about that on this show before, so I don't want to get into that in more detail. Second, opposing slavery was not the same as rejecting racism or white supremacy. For example, slavery could be opposed because it was thought to compete unfairly with free white labor. Many who opposed slavery also favored the colonization of freed slaves. If the 13th Amendment was needed to abolish slavery, the 14th and 15th Amendments were needed to combat the system of coercive white supremacy that embedded itself after slavery's demise. Um, it wasn't after slavery's demise. It was actually there before that. If you just go to the northern states, that were clamoring the most to get rid of slavery. And um, he, he kind of downplays this a little bit. But when you look at someone like, um, uh, you know, Benjamin Wade of Ohio, he made some of the most racist statements you'd ever find in the 19th century. But he was anti-slavery, you see. So there's a lot going on here. Um, and he kind of skims over this to make his position sound stronger. All well, these good, noble northerners. Um, these good, noble northerners need to be listened to. Law professors and the general public should be far more aware of both anti-slavery constitutionalism and the anti-slavery Republican Party that amended the Constitution to, amend, to end slavery and then amended it again to combat white supremacy. Uh, no. Um, if that was the case, again, then they would have abolished segregation in schools in the District of Columbia, for example. They didn't do that. I mean, that wasn't there to abolish or to combat white supremacy at all. At all. That's a... Uh, uh, they were they were all white supremacists. All of these people were. Um, that that's not that's not even a good argument. He's falling. He sounds very much like a leftist here. And again, he's making it out that people don't know this stuff. This is all you're taught in schools. Is this kind of stuff? This is it. This is the 1619 Project. This is the 1776 Commission. This is Randy Barnett. This is left libertarians. This is all you get. In school, I don't know why he's thinking this isn't taught at all. It's taught everywhere. The Republican Party was good in this issue. The Democrats were bad. Roger Tawney was bad. All of it's bad. All these you have to have the boogeyman. You have to have the bad guys. They're all taught like that. I mean, I, I can't. I can't even think of a place where it isn't taught like that. He's he's making it out. This kind of stuff doesn't go on every single day in classrooms across America. It does. But so too should we be far more aware of how much the founding generation opposed slavery in principle and planted the seeds of its demise in the text of the original constitution they drafted and ratified. Um, again, they did talk about it. You can even look into South Carolina ratification and, and uh, they did talk about how they thought, well, I mean, this could be a problem ultimately down the road. They mentioned it. But the promises were made, of course, that this wouldn't really affect them at all. Nothing there would affect them. It was neutral on the issue again. And, and in Massachusetts, the, argue, the other argument is made, why do we want to be in a union with slaveholders? Well, you don't have to worry about that because they're there and we're here and it's not a big deal. You see? 
Think twice before you adopt the views of Roger Tawney as your own. Uh, so again, um, I, I just think this piece is full of a whole lot of problems. And it took me three days to get to it for a reason because there was a lot of stuff there to get into. But I made it. One, do it in two. It took me three. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.